This morning I direct your attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. As I made mention last week, as we come to the conclusion of this letter, we're going to be slowing down a little bit. The fact is that as Paul starts to bring this letter to an end, he begins giving commands, one command after another in really rapid succession. So rather than try to rush through them and gathering two or three or four commands, we're going to break it down in some cases a verse at a time as may be necessary. So this morning, our attention is drawn to verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Hear the word of the Lord. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are merciful and you are true to your word. Father, you have promised that those who wait upon you will find their strength renewed. You have promised that those who seek you will be filled. So this morning we gather, confessing, Lord, our weaknesses, our struggles, our sins, and also confessing that we are seeking you, Lord. Claiming the promise of your word that you will forgive restore and fill so father grant these things today in the name of jesus amen one of the things that amazes the unbelieving world especially those sociologists who are not of the faith is this how in the world could christianity that started out as this very small sect of judaism in their terms grow into something that millions would adhere to and literally change the world. I mean, think about it. Christianity begins with Jesus, 12 disciples, one of whom betrays him, one who denies him. And it starts with those who are often the outcast and the rabble of society and brings change to the entire Roman Empire and the world. Rodney Stark, who is a believer, has written about this. In fact, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, other than acknowledging the supernatural work of the Spirit, which is how we would answer, it's something that God did. But he also points to two facts that happened through which God worked. Ironically, in the first 200 years of Christianity, there were two epidemics that swept through the Roman Empire. Killing millions, separating families because when someone in a home would get sick, the family didn't know what to do with them. So often they would literally leave that family member to die and get away from them so that they could live. But Christians did something quite different. Christians began to care not only for their own family members who were sick, but also for those who had been left behind. Stark points out that the willingness to suffer in order to care for the sick played a large part of people turning to Christians, seeking truth and coming to know Christ as their Savior in the early days of Christianity. In many ways, we are similar to that. Obviously, we're living in a pandemic right now. But even in the midst of adversity, our response in showing compassion points people to the truth of the gospel. 
Care and compassion demonstrated in the midst of adversity and persecution shows the truth of the gospel and reveals who God is. Now in this passage in verse 14, Paul has moved from discussing the relationship between the people and their pastors to the responsibility of the people. In fact, one word stands out as linking the two. Notice in verse 12, Paul speaks to the church to say they are to respect those who labor among them and are over them in the Lord and those who admonish you in the Lord. Then look down to verse 14. We urge you brothers, admonish the idol. Now, all of a sudden, we are clued into something very important. The work of the ministry does not belong to the pastors only. If anything, the pastors are to lead the way demonstrating what ministry looks like so that the church, the congregation, can follow in their example in ministering to one another. This is referred to as the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. This is a core doctrine among Baptists. The priesthood of the believer speaks, one, of the privilege that every believer has. As a follower of Christ, you have access into the very throne room of God. You have access to the very presence of God. You don't have to attain a certain level of spirituality. You don't have to attain a certain level of knowledge. By God's grace, every believer can call him Father and enter into his presence. That's the privilege. But the priesthood of the responsibility... Also, priesthood of the believer also speaks of responsibility. One of my professors at Southwestern Seminary was known as one of the leaders of Baptist history. His name was James Leo Garrett, who we affectionately refer to as Machine Gun Garrett. He gave lectures so fast it mowed everybody down. He wrote in his book, We Baptist, stating this. Let me get back to it here. Each believer is a priest. Both before God for oneself. That's the privilege. You're a priest before God. And by caring for fellow believers and for persons in the world for whom Christ died. The priesthood of the believer means that we are engaged in ministering to and caring for one another. It's not for a select group to do. It's for every believer to engage in ministering the gospel to one another. This is nothing new. In the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 35, verses 3 through 4, the prophet says this to those who are listening. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Interestingly, it ties in with the song we sang earlier, Almost Home. In the two verses prior to this, the prophet has spoken of God coming to turn deserts into a vast garden to bring about redemption. And he says, as that day approaches, strengthen one another. Don't let anyone fall by the wayside. This call to ministry is echoed again, time and time again in the New Testament. I give just one example, Hebrews 12, 12 through 13. Therefore... Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. 
The preacher in Hebrews uses athletic metaphor upon metaphor in these two verses. Drooping hands and weak knees comes from the realm of boxing in the athletic arena where the boxer is getting punched and punched and punched and he is about to give up. His hands are coming down and his knees are starting to buckle and he's about to go down for the count. And the preacher says, lift them. And that you're, you're there is plural. He is basically saying, you all lift up those parts of the body of Christ that have been beaten up by life that are weary and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame, what is hurting, what is wounded will not be put out of joint but healed. This responsibility is emphasized in verse 14 with the word we urge you. It lifts this beyond just a simple request. Paul's not just nicely asking us to minister. He is urging. It carries really the tone of admonishment. He is saying, do this. I'm pleading with you. And this language is exhorting and encouraging the church to do these four pastoral tasks. To admonish one another. To encourage, to help, and to be patient. These four tasks serve as a checklist for the church. It's very appropriate to step back and to say, okay, Trinity, how are we doing in these areas? But also must encourage you not just to think of the church at large, but to remember the church does these things as we, as individual members, do them. So while we think of the church as a whole, we must also look at our own lives. How are we doing at admonishing? Encouraging, helping, being patient. These are the characteristics of a church that is truly caring. Let's work our way through these so that we may understand and apply them appropriately. The first characteristic of a caring church is this. A caring church admonishes the idol. As I've already pointed out, the word admonish carries over from verse 12. It means to offer a course correction. It means that we speak to one another in terms of a behavior, addressing behavior that is, is bent on a path toward destruction. It's pleading with the person to repent, to change their behavior, recognizing that the path they're on is simply leading to destruction. You think of it in terms of a ship that is moving toward rocks and it's sailing quickly at full steam toward those rocks and somebody goes and pleads with the navigator, change course, change course because if you don't, destruction's going to happen. It's part of the role we are to have with one another. This is the task that belongs to every church member, not just the pastor. This isn't the only place in the scripture that the church is admonished to do this. Admonish to admonish. Colossians, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Notice as the word of Christ dwells within us, it will be shown as we teach and admonish one another, as we sing hymns and spiritual songs, as we have thankfulness. You see, admonishment comes as the word of Christ is dwelling within us. And because it is the word of Christ dwelling within us, it reminds us that admonishment is never done with a sense of superiority or pride. It's done out of love. If we seek this idea of admonishment with the idea of spiritual superiority or pride, we have simply fallen into Phariseeism. 
Because they were stickler for the rules, not because they cared about the other person, but because they valued their own religiosity and their own sense of superiority. Therefore, they would be quick to point out the wrongs. Rather, admonishment is done humbly and lovingly because church admonishment is an act of love. Jesus certainly called people to repent. He came preaching repentance. But in the passage that Pastor Nathan read earlier, what did he say? Come, take your yoke upon me because I am lowly, out of humility. Admonishment, to use the term that's in popular culture today, is really an intervention. It's sitting down with someone and saying, listen, I'm speaking to you because I love you and I'm concerned about you. I, I'm concerned about the decisions you're making, the path that you are on and what is going. And notice here in this text, verse 14, the focus of admonishment is the idol. That word idol is a word that is packed with meaning. On one hand, it clearly refers to the lazy, those who are not working. That's how we typically think of the idol. It's someone that is not engaged in, in putting forth the energy, the effort that they need to. They're lazy. But it also means the undisciplined and the unruly. It refers to a person who does what they want to do regardless of what anybody says or thinks. The idol is that person who has the attitude of, nobody's going to tell me how to live my life. I'm going to do what I want to do. So on one hand, idol speaks of passive disobedience. Not doing what you're supposed to do. And on the other hand, it speaks of an active disobedience. Engaging in behavior that you know you ought not to do. This was something that the church at Thessalonica was struggling with. Look back to chapter 4, verse 11 for a moment. As Paul is writing to instruct this church, he's urging them to love one another. To do this more and more. That's the end of verse 10 in chapter 4. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. That is to love one another. And then he says, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. Notice the two things he's admonishing them to do is the exact opposite of being idle. The latter part, work with your own hands. Don't be idle. And also he's saying to aspire to live quiet and to mind your own affairs. In other words, they were engaged in behavior that was not living quietly, that was not focusing on their own affairs. Another example of this you'll see up on the screen in 2 Thessalonians 3, 11 through 12. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. You see the two sides of that? They're not busy at work, but they're busy bodies. Now, you may be thinking, well, pastor, you've been talking about admonishing one another, being concerned and involved in one another's lives. What's the difference? Remember, a busy body just wants to know what's going on so they can say they know. They don't care about stepping in and acting in love to help someone return to Christ. The only thing a busy body wants to know is what everybody's doing so they can be in the know. So Paul says to the church, you're, you're not busy at work, you're being busybodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to what? To do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Paul recognized the danger to the church. Those who fall into the active and passive realm of being idle, one, become a drain on the church's resources because they simply take and never think about giving. It falls into the category, the, the statistic that seems to characterize so many churches, and you've heard it, that in most churches, 80% of the people 
or 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Could it be that we are guilty of being idle? Of content to let others do the work of ministry? Paul was concerned that the church would be weakened if every member did not step forward to minister and to work. But he also knew this. Those who were actively being busybodies, as the case was in Thessalonica, or who were doing whatever they wanted, would damage the reputation of Christ in the church. He knew this. So he wanted to safeguard the glory of Christ as much as he could by admonishing them. You see, we need to recognize that our actions... Whether they be good or bad, as Christians, reflect, tell something about who Jesus is and about our walk with him. It matters how we live. Sebastian Younger, an author of several books, spent several months, in fact, a year and a half, embedded with a platoon in Afghanistan. He lived among this platoon as they did their work in one of the most hazardous regions of that country, And he realized something very important. Soldiers have to rely on one another. And what you do or don't do as a soldier affects everyone else in the platoon. In fact, he began to witness this sense of admonishment, a biblical word, where soldier would admonish another soldier. In fact, he said one day he saw one private dress down another private severely because that one private's shoelaces on his boot We're dragging the ground. Wait, he got chewed out for an untied boot? Yeah. Because the soldier explained to him, if we are called to action and your shoelace is untied and hits the ground, if you stumble or fall, it puts the rest of us at danger. If you're not ready to go, it puts us all at risk. So the action of one impacts all of us. That is why we must recognize that we are connected and need one another to speak truth into our lives lovingly, humbly, honestly. That we would live as Christ intends. So church, we are to admonish one another. We are also, according to the scripture, a caring church encourages the faint-hearted. A caring church consists of members that will seek how they can encourage one another. Encourage means to console, to give emotional support, to comfort. And notice that in the text, this encouragement is aimed toward the faint-hearted. That word faint-hearted literally means little life. It refers to the person who has been hit time and again by life and their heart begins to shrink within them. Things have happened that have caused their soul within them to begin to enter into anthropy, uh, where entropy, where they are shrinking away. Life in this fallen world has a way of bringing discouragement and often hope is one of its first casualties. You and I could name the list that causes us to become faint-hearted. Adversity, sickness, death. We all at one time or another will feel weak and worn down. That's why Paul says we are to encourage one another. Now the truth is that the real issue is not encouraging one another. I think we do that. 
We do that by sharing our lives together. We, we heed the admonition that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, where he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Amen. Do you know the comfort of Christ? But do you also recognize, believer, that one of the reasons he has comforted you is so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. As you receive comfort, you're like a straw that the comforting power of God flows through to reach others, that you can share what God has done in your life, that you can encourage with Scripture, that you can encourage with your presence. Because sometimes it is the comfort of God that is experienced through the church. See, in, in my experience in the last almost five years now since my daughter Emma has been sick, I've heard people say time and time again, I don't see how people go through crises without the Lord. And I say amen to that. But there's something else you need to be aware of. I don't see how people go through crisis without the church, without the body of Christ. Because you know how you experience the comfort of the Lord? It says the church comes around you demonstrating that. Jackie Robinson is known as one of the all-time great baseball players. Aside from the fact that he broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball, we can't even begin to imagine how he suffered insults and ridicule and jeers at every ballpark he went to. There was a time when he was playing at, at Brooklyn Stadium where the Dodgers were at that time, and he made an error. He played second base. Ball got through his, got through his glove, and the crowd... I mean, it's Brooklyn. They begin to jeer him. He just kind of stood there for a moment with his head down until Pee Wee Reese, the shortstop, came and put his arm around him and said, I'm with you. By the way, that moment has been immortalized in a statue that stands outside of Dodger Stadium now in Los Angeles. Jackie Robinson said that one act changed my entire career. We need to be those that come and stand alongside. But you know what? That's not the problem. You know what the biggest problem is? None of us want to admit to being faint-hearted. We'll be quick to give care. But we're not quick to say, you know what? I am wounded and I am hurting. We know this because we're often asked, how are you today? And what's our answer? I'm fine. And we're not. We will know the tenderness of God as we begin to humble ourselves at times. When somebody says, how are you doing? And we take that risk and say, I'm not doing so well today. Will you be that one then that will stop what you're doing, come alongside them, and say, how can I pray with you? I love you, my brother. I love you, my sister. That's encouraging the faint-hearted. And that's what a caring church does. But it also helps the weak. The word help means to assist by supplying what is needed. It's giving assistance to the weak. The weak are those who are wanting or lacking. It could be spiritually or physically. The weak could refer to those who maybe encountered some sort of financial need or some problem in which they need help. Spiritually, it can refer to the weak in two areas. In the scripture, the weak could be those who are struggling to break sinful patterns developed before they came to Christ. 
Ironically, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the weak is not those who are struggling with sin. The, the weak are those who feel spiritually superior and are walking in pride and are legalist. Paul refers to them as the weak because they don't recognize the grace of God. He's saying what the church does is it helps those who are weak. It's a wide a term that covers a wide variety of meanings. The sick, the lonely, the spiritually struggling, those who are struggling emotionally. And our call is to help, to be wise, to know what is needed. You see, different wounds require different bandages. A scratch on the knee doesn't require a cast, but a broken bone requires more than a band-aid. We need to be wise in ministering to the weak and coming alongside them. And that does. It takes time and effort. But that's who our Lord is and what He has called us to do. In 2002, on June 22nd, the Queen Creek Mine in Lincoln Township, Pennsylvania flooded. Millions of gallons of water started to rush into the mine. Most of the miners got out except for nine miners who were at 240 feet below the surface. Those nine miners were trapped for three days in a water in a, a cavern that was partially filled with 55-degree water. The risk of hypothermia was great. Miraculously, all of them survived. Harry Mayhew, one of the surviving miners, told about how they survived. He said when one would get cold, the other eight would huddle around the person and warm them. And when another person got cold, the favor was returned. Everyone had strong moments, but at any certain time, maybe one guy got down, then the rest pulled together. Then that guy would get back up, and maybe someone else would feel a little weaker. But it was a team effort. That's the only way it could have been. Church, we are the body of Christ. We are His. We must come and huddle around one another because that's how we will make it home with the power of Christ. And we need to do this with patience. You see, a caring church is patient. Now, I know when patience is mentioned, you've probably heard that admonition. Don't pray for patience because God will bring about things to make you patient. But I want you to realize that patience is a sign the Holy Spirit's working in your life. Regardless of circumstances, if the Holy Spirit's dwelling within you, you'll be growing in patience because patience is a fruit of the Spirit. And patience is also an expression of love. One of the ways we show love for one another is by being patient, not quick-tempered, not irritable with one another, but patient. 1 Corinthians 13 is often known as the love chapter. Most of us are familiar with it from weddings. Could I shock you for a moment and tell you that the primary application of 1 Corinthians 13 is not a wedding? It's the church. Chapter 12 deals with spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. Chapter 14 deals with warnings about prophecy and speaking in tongues and all those things within the church. And guess what's right in the middle of spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues? Love. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about the love the church is to have for one another. And one of the things he says is this, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Patience is the opposite of irritability. It's being long-suffering toward one another. 
You say, well, how can I learn to be patient with one another? It's this. Remember how patient God is with you. God is long-suffering toward us. When you are tempted to be patient, remember that God is not impatient with you. And we need to realize that each and every one of us at one time or another fit the category of the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. You see, these are not just sections of the church. These are descriptions of each and every believer at one time or another. Who among us can truly say we've always done what we're supposed to do, that we've never been lazy? Who among us can say we've never felt like giving up? Who among us can say we've never felt weak? You see, this is the description of all of us. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer warns about the idealization of the church. He says, when we build the church up that it's full of perfect people, God in his grace will shatter that false idea. Because the only way we know his grace in our lives and in the lives of others is to recognize that we are at times idle, faint-hearted, and weak. That's why we must be patient with each other. And know that when we care for one another, we are demonstrating who God is. God is calling us in each of these commands to reflect his character. God admonishes the idol. God knows what is needed. He is that good doctor who knows exactly what the wound needs. Take, for example, the prophet Elijah, strong man of God, there on Mount Carmel battling 7,000 prophets of Baal. But then Jezebel puts out a death warrant on his head and Elijah runs and he's by the, the brook and he's having a pity party. God, I know I called down fire from heaven, but now I'm by myself. Jezebel wants to kill me. Why'd you do this, God? You hear the violin music in the background. God basically comes to him and says, Elijah, I've got 4,000 other prophets who have not bent the knee to Baal. Now get up and go to them. God knew exactly what was needed because God also encourages. God knows what you need. In Isaiah chapter 42, when the prophet is describing the Messiah, Jesus, look at what he says. Jesus, the Messiah, the suffering servant, will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He knows what you need. He is that tender-hearted, compassionate encourager. Yeah, he knows when we need a little bit of a get-up-and-go. But he also knows when we need that hug. He's promised us that if you're that wick on a candle that's about to be extinguished, he's not going to snuff you out. If you're that reed that is bent by the winds of life, he's not there to finish the job. He's there to restore. And when we minister to one another in that manner, we are showing the world who God is. He's the helper of the weak. When the woman was caught in adultery, feeling shame, what did Jesus do? He embarrassed those who were accusing her. And then he knelt down beside this woman who in her weakness and shame had been completely humiliated. He says to her, where are your condemners? 
I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And church, he is a God who is patient with us. You know how I can say that? We're still here. He's not stricken us dead. As we show patience with one another, we are showing people who our God is. And we are demonstrating the truth of the gospel. I've never been a mountain climber. Every now and then I'll hike to the refrigerator, but that's about the extent of it. But true mountain climbers, they're serious about it. When they are climbing in a group, they'll connect themselves to one another. Now, the old joke was that's so if one falls, they all fall. But that's not really the case. It's to prevent falling. They connect themselves so that if one stumbles, the others act as stability. And they help that climber up. Church, we're connected. We need to be that one admonishing the idle, encouraging the tenderhearted, helping the weak, and being patient with them all. Because in doing so, we're ministering to one another and ourselves. Will you bow with me in prayer right now? Gracious Lord, we are very aware that we have not always done these things as we should. But Father, this morning we are claiming the good news of the gospel that says forget what lies behind and press on toward what lies ahead. So we ask for your grace this morning, Lord, to help us to truly be the church. I know the evil one will work and say, well, who are you to, to admonish or to offer encouragement? And Lord, I pray that we will know we are the sons of the Most High through Jesus Christ. I pray that we will know we are your children equipped by your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray. I pray for those that are trying to give care this morning, that are seeking to admonish, to encourage, to help. Strengthen them, O oh Lord. And Father, I also pray for those of us who at times are idle, faint-hearted, and weak. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being faithful and true. In Jesus' name, amen.